It's another beautiful evening here at IMS. I was about to say another beautiful spring evening, but I think we've kind of morphed over into summer during the time that we've been here. A beautiful day for us to practice together. Tonight I want to talk about the three parts of the path for lay people. And this can be summarized very succinctly in one of um, perhaps the shortest sutras of the Buddha from the Dhammapada. Do what is good. Refrain from causing harm. Purify the mind and heart. This is the teachings of the Buddhas. So there are the three parts. And they're often uh, called in in the three parts of the path for us lay people, dana, sila, and bhavana, or giving, ethical conduct, and mind development. So this is the traditional order that they're presented, dana, sila, bhavana. And with this usual order, generosity and ethical conduct the first two, are considered uh, beautiful and profound practices on their own. That if we just did these two practices, uh, there could be so much transformation in the heart and the mind. But they're also considered foundations for the third part, the part of mind development. So generosity or dana opens the heart. Pema Chodron says that it ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption, which is really one of my favorite uh, descriptions. Ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. So giving um, uh, helps with the opening of the heart and the letting go of excessive self-concern. And in that way, it lightens our heart. We feel our interconnectedness and our embeddedness in community. It can be a source of deep joy. The last time I was talking about this at a retreat, I had an assistant teacher, and she told me this story at dinner time before I gave the talk. She said that her father... Um, not known to be a very giving man, kind of more on the other side of, of the equation. She said that one time he was traveling, um, I, he, I think he worked a lot for the Foreign Service or something like that. But anyway, he was traveling in another country with her brother, with my assistant's brother. And um, they happened to come by a beggar, and for some reason that day he gave some money to the beggar. Not his usual practice, but he did that day. And his brother said, the rest of the day he seemed so much lighter. And that his brother felt, or her brother felt, that it was because he had given something. Which jives with the Buddhist understanding that the one who gives is the lucky one because of the effect on the heart and the mind when we can give joyfully. In Burma, where we've all traveled a lot, they don't say thank you when you give something because they 
figure that in some ways they've done you the favor. <laughs> they've allowed you to give and um, to receive the benefits of giving. So these benefits of a lighter heart and a less um, a heart less contracted in self-absorption, um, this is really helpful when we meditate. This is why this is the part about it being a foundational practice for meditation, because you may have noticed that when your heart and your mind feel lighter, it's easier to meditate, right? It's e- the mar- heart and mind are more malleable; they're um, easier to work with. It said that the proximate cause of concentration is happiness. And giving is a source of happiness. And then sila, or ethical conduct, as a foundational practice. Um, sila calms the mind so that we can see more clearly. Many of you have mentioned that at times you've remembered things on this retreat that that you did that weren't so helpful, and you notice that um, the heart and mind get turbulent when this happens, that there's regret and remorse and worry, and um, the heart and mind don't settle as easily, so again, we can't see as clearly. The Buddha said that trying to practice meditation without a foundation of ethical conduct is like trying to row a boat without untying it from the dock. (laughs) So the Western way of looking at these three parts of the path, however, is often reversed. Many of us um, don't come into Buddhism through the doorway of generosity or through the doorway of ethical conduct, which in the East um, is, is the most common way to come in for lay people. But most of us come in because we're interested in the part on mind development. Often we are um, suffering in some way, and we hope or, or have some faith that this meditation practice can help with that. So we usually start with bhavana, and then we might consider sila as important, and then we might um, look at dana. So I'm going to talk more uh, this week or tonight about in this order. So bhavana, mind and heart development. Well, that's what we've been talking about most of the week. How we are the two weeks. How do we train the heart and the mind in a way that leads to deeper and deeper um, levels or kinds of peace, you could say. One way we can look at mind development is that our practice is about strengthening wholesome or helpful mind states and about lessening the force of unskillful, unhelpful, unwholesome mind states. So strengthening such beneficial mind states as the seven factors of enlightenment or the four Brahma-viharas or the paramis, some of you know of the ten paramis. And lessening the force of unskillful mind states like the hindrances or the three roots of suffering, grasping, aversion, and delusion. 
Some of you might be wondering if I'm contradicting our teachings on accepting, because we, we put a lot of emphasis on accepting what's happening, whatever arises. So there may seem to be a bit of a contradiction here, but, but I assure you there's not. <laughs> yes, whatever arises in our practice, we turn towards it and we accept it as our experience in that moment. We accept it as part of this experience of a human life. So we meet it with, a, with an open heart, you could say. And yes, yes, also, we do hope to strengthen beneficial mind states and weaken um, unhelpful mind states. But we have to be so careful because when we hear that, some part of us can translate that into, oh, we want to cling to uh, beneficial mind states and we want to reject unbeneficial ones. Sometimes we can just, even without realizing it, make that translation. But that isn't what I said. (laughs) The truth is that mindfulness does the trick quite well um, as far as... um, strengthening wholesome and weakening unwholesome mind states. It's quite amazing. It's such an amazing quality that when we bring mindfulness to wholesome, helpful mind states, they increase. They strengthen. That's why uh, the, the instructions this morning said, notice that factors of awakening are present or other wholesome mind states. Because just bringing mindfulness to them helps them to Um, show up again. (laughs) And at the same time, bringing mindfulness to unwholesome, unhelpful mind states um, weakens their power, you could say. It's like I was talking the other day about how if we have the cloth and we poke holes in it with mindfulness and that eventually when there's enough holes, we start to be able to see through. So it's kind of amazing the same quality of mindfulness does both of these things. So really you can let mindfulness, so you can let mindful awareness do the work. We don't have to try to hold on to the pleasant or helpful mind states. We don't have to try to get rid of the other ones. We just um, bring mindfulness to these experiences. If you want to judge your practice, which probably a lot of you would like to do, (laughs) am I making progress? Um, Look over the years at um, kind of the trajectory of your practice and do you see some strengthening of helpful, wholesome mind states? And do you see some weakening of unwholesome mind states or at least they don't dominate us like they used to? Or we have more choice how we respond to them. So, for example, when aversion arises, we have more space and more choice about what we do in that moment. We can make good choices rather than bad choices like that little kid last night. (laughs) I've been thinking about him all day. He was so cute. (laughs) We're all kind of like that, that little kid. He's like, what did he say exactly? My dad says I make bad choices. <laughs> and you could tell he's like trying to figure out like what did I do? <laughs> and why? Well, how did that happen? And uh, you know, I think we're kind of the same. We're trying to figure this out. 
But if we, if we see over time that there's that um, trajectory in our practice, then we don't have to worry about the lightning bolts and whether, as Greg was saying, it we're kind of, you know, drifting up near the ceiling or, um, you know, whether we've had amazing experiences or not in our practice. Those are all extra. <laughs> What's really important is the transformation of the heart and the mind. Is it going in the right direction? And as I said, we don't want to make this judgment after every sitting. It's too up and down, but over, over a, you know, a good chunk of time. And so partly, uh, so what happens with this process of um, mindful awareness uh, and mind development is we start to understand more clearly suffering. We start to understand why and how suffering arises. We start to understand um, how suffering ends or what leads to the ending of suffering. And really key in this is this quality of delusion. Somebody left a note asking for a little more information about delusion. So there's these three roots of suffering. There's grasping, aversion, and delusion. Delusion is, you could say, the key one out of which arises grasping and aversion. So I discussed delusion uh, the other day as um, disconnection, denial, distortion. That's part of it. But in Buddhism, we also want to really look at um, delusion as, you could say, as distorted perception about the way the world is. That living in the conceptual world, our concepts, we make assumptions about permanence and assumptions about the self and the permanence of the self that are um, misguided or incorrect. Upon closer examination, which is what we're encouraging you all to do to get closer, we start to see things more clearly as they are. And that's what begins to dispel delusion. So the delusion is um, the distorted way that we see the world. And wisdom is seeing things clearly as they are. And so the, this deep seeing, not just understanding, but seeing within our own heart, bodies, and mind the truth of how life is dispels delusion and weakens um, grasping and aversion. So this is all part of our mind development journey. And in this process, we witness the unbinding of the heart and the mind from the entanglement in these obstructions. And increasingly, we have more access to the natural spacious and radiance of our heart and our mind. So bhavana, let's move on to sila. As we show up more for our lives, as we settle in into what is really happening, a couple of things um, start to manifest. One is that we start to feel more clearly our natural compassionate and caring heart. 
Whereas we may first have come to meditation because of our own personal suffering and wanting to resolve our own personal suffering, we start to connect more deeply with the world around us. And we start to see how we influence the world around us. We start to take our place in this world. And we start to have more sensitivity for our place in the world. Norman Fisher describes this process very beautifully. He says, We are human beings and we must feel love and hate, elation and terrible grief. But underneath these things we come to see through our practice. There is a wider world beyond our concerns, a wild, radically sane world in which we can accept what occurs, aware of our feelings of grief or happiness, but not pushed around by them. This kind of acceptance does not mean not caring. In fact, with this real, total acceptance comes a transformation in our ability to care. We care for everything very deeply. Not just victims, not just suffering people, but all people. And not just all people, but also animals and plants and also ourselves. And out of this care, we find that we um, develop a growing commitment to not spread suffering, to not cause harm in this world, not to ourselves and not to others. And we start to get more sensitive about what that means. It's often interesting when I uh, am going to give a talk and I'm having dinner that night. Often when I mention what I'm going to talk about, people have um, a story to share. So like the story that my assistant shared about her father. Well, tonight I was in the staff dining room and uh, I mentioned what I was speaking about. And one of the uh, staff members does volunteer work at a prison and he told me a story which he said it was fine to share. So he said, yesterday we went to the prison and we were talking about Sila with the guys. And uh, our task, the task we had for them is tell one good act that they did. And then the others were going to witness this and, and kind of um, support it. And so he said there was one guy, he, um, he said, well, yeah, I did something. You know, it probably wasn't a big deal. There were a couple other beings involved. It, it may not have really mattered to them. And he kept kind of like downplaying what he had done. So finally he says, yesterday I shoo- uh, there was an ant and a spider in my um, cell and I, I shooed it out and, you know, instead of killing it. I just shooed it out. He said, I felt something in my heart. I think it was compassion. and then he said it's not such a big deal (laughs) and the leaders of the um, you know the people who are leading the class they said no actually that's a really big deal that's really beautiful because he was starting to feel his heart right and starting to feel his connection with all beings and out of that we care and we take more care with our actions 
So we start to find that, that, that our heart starts to have this little tender quality. I'm sure you've noticed it at some point in the retreat. Um, one yogi was telling me about how she met a newborn fawn in the woods. Apparently she wasn't the only one. Um, and a, a very young, new fawn out on the trails back here. Uh, just a couple of days ago, and, and that it was a baby trying to walk on its new legs. And she said it, it reflected back to her this tender heart that we start to develop and connect with in the safety of retreat. Basically, we're allowing our usual defenses to soften a little bit, and so that that caring heart can peek out, show itself, and we can start to uh, get to know it and um, be with it. The last retreat I taught here, one yogi talked about how he was in the dining room and uh, saw a cashew on the floor, and it had some ants on it, so he picked it up and threw it away. And then he said, afterwards I started thinking about that. Like, did I break the first precept? You know, it's in the quiet of retreat and in the space that we have here, we have time to ask these kinds of important questions. We have time to um, think about the impact of our actions. It's quite beautiful, this, this uh, space that we have to do this. And as part of this, we may find that um, we go through periods of practice where we reflect, um, we do a little life review, we reflect on uh, our actions in the past, especially our actions that might have caused some harm. I mentioned this the other day. Ways that we might not have recognized at the time or that we weren't able to... um, we were under the influence. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about under the influence of greed and aversion. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. It can get us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do <laughs> or things that we later regret. And it's a painful part of practice, but it's a very important one because it, it's, it's tuning our own interior moral compass On my first long retreat here, um, the first three-month course, I spent quite an extended period of time where this was happening. I was just remembering all these little things, and they weren't huge, but kind of the cumulative impact of was, was one of really opening my eyes to a certain kind of carelessness with my actions. I remembered that I am... Um, I still remember some of the things that made that kind of impression. Like I had borrowed a a shirt from a friend of mine, and um, I liked it a lot, so I kept forgetting to give it back to her. (laughs) It may be a small thing, it seems like, but our life, you know, our our tendencies of mind are affected by these small things. And I I brought sheets with me, because we were supposed to bring sheets. I don't know if you guys still do that. Um... And I'd been staying at my dad's house, and I brought sheets from his house, and I didn't ask him if I could bring them. And I was going to bring them back, but, you know, it's still, it's not clean. It's not clean. I started to see the ways that my actions weren't clean. I think the practice of forgiveness has to go hand in hand 
with this tuning our moral compass because we're going to make mistakes. And if we don't have the capacity or don't develop the capacity to forgive ourselves, then we wind up getting bogged down in guilt and shame. There's a great practice from the Tibetan tradition that I think is really helpful for forgiveness. It's called the Four Powers. And um, I think of it as four R's. So the first R is recognition. We recognize what we did was unskillful. The second one is remorse. So we allow ourselves to feel remorse. Remorse is painful, but it's actually considered a wholesome mind state. I think there's only two wholesome mind states that are painful. This is as far as I know. I might have this wrong, but as far as I know, there's two wholesome mind states that are painful. And that's um, this kind of remorse and regret. And then something that's, um, oh, the translations aren't so great, moral dread. <laughs> it's, it's the recognizing that something that you're about to do is unskillful and will have unwholesome ho- outcomes. So, recognition, remorse, remediation. So maybe there's apologies to be had or some um, way to remediate what we did. And under this is included understanding what caused us to act unskillfully and doing what we can to change the cause. Um, Let's see if I can give an example. All right, this is a very lame example, but you're going to have to take it. (laughs) Let's say I tend to eat too many cookies. So I bring too many cookies home, I overeat, I don't feel good about it, it's not good for my health, whatever. Remediation could be don't buy the cookies. Because once they're at home, you're going to eat them. (laughs) So don't even get them home. So looking at some way that we can um, intervene earlier on so that the conditions are more favorable for us not to repeat the unskillful action. So regret, remorse, remediation, and recommit. We recommit to living by our deep values. And if we've done those four, I think it's time to forgive ourselves. I think we've done what we can do. And to recognize that as humans, we're going to make another mistake. We're going to make bad choices sometimes, (laughs) because that's what it's like being a human. So we start to wonder, what kind of wake are we leaving behind us in the world as we move through the world? And we make this deepening commitment to leaving behind us a wake of non-harming. And the precepts can be enormously helpful here. I love the precepts. <laughs> they're they're, they're um, so um, handy because uh, they give us very concrete places to pay attention. And if we're about to break a precept and, we, and we're familiar with them, for me it's like I see a little um, red flag wave. Rebecca, that's a precept. <laughs> Pay attention here. And it, um, it really helps. 
on top of it, um, sila and keeping the precepts is great stress reduction. It's not how it's usually talked about, but I think it was this fall I was teaching here and um, I was making a copy of a talk. It might have been a talk on sila, I think it was. And in the office, um, there was a bag of chocolate-covered acacia berries or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was good. And, <laughs> and so I, thought, I saw it, and my first inclination was, I want some of those. And, um, and then I kind of played out my mind what would happen if I tried to have some of the berries. And I thought, wow, so I would have to... Um, first of all, I'd have to eat them quickly to make sure that nobody came in and caught me eating them. Cause, oh, because it said on it, to the staff, to the office staff. There's a little sticker on it. It was very clear. It was not for me. And, <laughs> and I started to realize like all the kind of conniving and um, hurry and everything that I would have to go to to eat those um, berries, those chocolate, dark chocolate-covered berries. Um, wow, just stress. Like not worth it. And, you know, it was the second precept little flag, you know. It wasn't given to me. So I didn't eat them. Um, I mentioned it in the talk, and the next day I got a whole bag of them. (laughs) Instant karma. (laughs) Whoever had left them left me a bag. (laughs) So we look at these precepts, and, um, you know, we notice them here and the care that we might take. For example, with the first precept of not killing living beings, we look at the care we might take with the ant in our room and the spider like the, like the man in prison described. The last retreat I was teaching, um, right before I left to teach, we discovered that uh, there was a porcupine living in the culvert, the culvert under our driveway. I did some research on porcupines and discovered they like to eat gardens, of which I have one. Um, <laughs> and so we had this dilemma. My partner and I were like, what are we going to do with the porcupine denning under our driveway? We've had fox den there before. They, they seem to like it. And, um, you know, at one point I thought, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll shoo the porcupine out somehow and then we can cover it and everything. And then I started to think, well, what if the porcupine has babies? You know, if we shoo it out, we could kill the babies or, you know, something could happen to the babies. And I didn't particularly want um, porcupines in training in my, um, <laughs> in my yard, <laughs> but I didn't want to kill the babies. So it was really interesting. I was like, well, I have an ethical dilemma here, like what, what to do about the porcupines. Fortunately, he he was wrong. There wasn't a porcupine living in the culvert, so I got um, spared. I, I, was, I was definitely not going to kill the babies. I, was, I just wasn't going to do that. But I was going to have to be creative. Sometimes keeping the precepts calls on us to be creative to how we solve our problems rather than maybe our first inclination might be. Like, I have a garden, so, so what do we do when we have a garden and we're keeping the first precept? I generally grow extra. That's one of my techniques. I, I kind of, up to a third of the harvest, I'm willing to share. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then um, some things I've just quit growing. There's too many bugs and and I I just don't, I just buy them instead of grow them. And um, some bugs I transport, I catch them and I transport them. And um, Mostly I, I cohabitate with insects. <laughs> but keeping the precepts calls on us to investigate these kinds of things. What do we do when we find a bug in our room that we don't want there? Right? We transport it. We take it outside. We take care. We understand that all beings want to live. We really feel that. Before I practiced, I, like most people, would kill mosquitoes. And then once I started practicing and really paying attention, I found it's really painful to kill a mosquito. It feels, it feels terrible. That's that sensitivity that grows. Second precept, not taking that which is not given. Hmm. A couple years ago, um, we have at our house uh, a garage, a big town garage, and, and we were pretty sure that we could go and get sand for our driveway from it, but we weren't absolutely positive. It was out in the country. We could have just gone and nobody would have noticed. But I called the town clerk and I asked. I said, is it okay to go get sand for our personal use? And she's like, yes. And wow, it's so nice of you to call. She was like so happy that I had called. Apparently, most people don't. <laughs> and uh, there, there's, I gave her, you could say, with the precepts, we give the gift of um, trust and fearlessness. And she felt that with the asking. Or we look at how our, our actions, when we take something, how it affects others. Um, in the lunch line today, when I came to the potato chip bowl, there was like one small serving left. So I had my own little ethical dilemma, right? Um, you know, if I had taken the rest of the potato chips, there were some people after me, and they weren't going to get any. Now, fortunately, I'm a teacher, and I can go in the um, in the kitchen, which I did, <laughs> and got them to bring out more um, potato chips. But the second precept helps us to be, you know, to pay attention to things like that. Yeah. And the third precept on... Um, um, on retreat, we're celibate, right? In, in daily life, it's, uh, it's to refrain from causing harm with sexual energy. But on retreat, we get a chance to really explore that energy, if it arises, without acting it out, so that we can get to know it really well, so that we can um, know that... Um, that we, we can understand, for example, that the emotions that might come with it, we can understand it so that it can be used in our lives in ways that create joy and deepening connection with, with a partner um, rather than harm, because we know that it can go either way. And the fourth precept of um, refraining from false speech, which is... Very interesting. (laughs) 
lying is very stressful. We have to keep track of our stories. Sometimes we have to tell another lie to cover up our first one, and then we have to remember them all, and it it gets quite confusing. Or sometimes we lie just to save ourselves trouble. And again, for me, it's like a little preset. Maybe I'm about to tell a little lie. Maybe just a friend asks if I'd like an outfit or something. You know, and it's just like the easy thing to say, oh yeah, it looks nice, but but what happens when we don't tell the truth? People don't know if they can trust us. I think it was last summer I... um, I biked into town. I often bike into the town that I live in to, on Saturday mornings. I'll do some errands. I'll go to the farmer's market and uh, the library and um, sometimes get a slice of pizza. So I dropped off. I had my bike, and I didn't have my lock. So I went to the pizza place, and there was this kid sitting there. He must have been about, I don't know, maybe nine years old. And I said, will you watch my bike for me? And he said, yeah, sure. So I went in, got my pizza, came back out. And I was sitting with him and talking with him, and I said, his name was Benjamin, and I said, well, Benjamin, maybe someday you can ride your bike into town. It was, I, I felt, I was pretty sure that he lived in town, and he did. And he says, oh, but my bike is broken. And I said, oh, that's too bad, and we kept talking. Then his parents came out, and they were sitting there, and um, his mom and his stepdad, I said, well, maybe your stepdad can fix your bike, and then you could bike into town. And his mom and stepdad look at me and they said, his bike's not broken. <laughs> so I turned to him and I said, Benjamin, we have a problem. <laughs> you told me a fib and now I don't know if I can believe you. I still like you, but I don't have the same trust because you told me a fib. And he's just kind of looking at me, and you know, and his mom's like, "Keep going." <laughs> it was very sweet. <laughs> at least it was sweet to me. I don't know if it was sweet to Benjamin, but he was. He was really interested. Like he was just trying to like understand what I was saying to him. Yeah. Greg's instructions on intentions can be helpful um, when it comes to speech. Like if we can notice the intention to speak, it gives us a chance to decide whether what we're going to say is true, whether it's useful, whether it's the right time to speak it. Three criteria that the Buddha suggested. So just when we're here practicing intention, intention to take a step, we're getting used to like that feeling of the intention to commit an action. And it can help us learn that this is a place we can pause and make better choices. And the last one of the precepts to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind, well, that helps us keep the other um, four at the very minimum. (laughs) I think on retreat we can get a deeper understanding too of um, really this can be expanded to all the um, things that we ingest in the heart and the mind, the body. 
the summer before I um, did my first long retreat here, I was staying at my dad's house and I didn't have much to do. I was young and I didn't have a job right then. I was just waiting for the retreat to start. And I took to watching um, two soap operas every day, a couple of soap operas. So I came to retreat, and guess what I thought about for the first three weeks? (laughs) I wonder if she stayed with him. (laughs) I hope he found out that she did that. (laughs) You know, it just like, it went on and on. It was horrible. (laughs) I was like, I don't want to be thinking this. But it was deeply educational, because what I realized is, what I put in my mind, it affects my mind. That's not a general understanding that we have in our society. I made a commitment to never watch another soap opera because I didn't want that in my mind. So if we, if we see on our retreat here what we put in our minds, it can help us to make better choices about that. One Sri Lankan monk said, if we just kept the precepts wholeheartedly, that would be the whole path. The whole practice. Because really, to keep the precepts wholeheartedly, we have to look at greed, hatred, and delusion. We have to look at the three roots of suffering. And the more deeply we understand these, the easier it's going to be to keep the precepts. So all our work here with looking at greed, aversion, and delusion will help us in our sila practice. And then lastly, dana, or giving. So we see that we don't just want to refrain from causing suffering in this world. We see that our hearts want to give. We see that the unobstructed heart wants to share. The unobstructed heart feels connected, sees need, wants to respond, wants to do something about it. This goes against the myth that Buddhism is about detachment. Buddhism is about connection and non-attachment, which I'll talk about later, but that's different than kind of detaching. I would say that our practice reaches its fullest maturity in giving. And in a society like ours that stresses individualism, that the dominant society stresses individualism, this isn't always going to be held as the highest value. So for some of us, it's a practice. It's an inclination of the heart that we encourage. Some of the non-dominant cultures in this country do um, stress it, uh, uh, stress uh, generosity and gratitude more. I see generosity and gratitude as two sides of one coin. Generosity is giving with an open heart, and gratitude is receiving with an open heart. I read a story in a magazine with, um, I think it was Joanna Macy had gone to a Native American um, tribe uh, meeting with some elders of a Native American tribe in this country, and they were showing her around uh, 
their their town and kind of showed them the school and she was talking about the the practices at the school and she said well at the beginning of the day we we gather all the students and we do some gratitude practice we don't do the full gratitude practice cuz that would take several days we just do um the short version of 20 minutes i was thinking what would it be like if we gathered all the kids in our schools and did 20 minutes of gratitude every morning Wow, what a beautiful practice. So I think of giving as a purification practice um, like the Brahma Vihara practices. We have the intention to give and then we work with what comes up. We see what comes up. We see what um, may block the natural desire of the heart to give and share. So we uh, may see, for example, when, when we are giving and when it's really more about ourselves rather than, than the, the, real, the more pure offering. Or we might see our deep um, beliefs around giving. Early in my practice, I know that I felt that if I gave too much, there wouldn't be enough for me. It was very deep conditioning for me that I, through generosity practice, Um, brought to light and questioned the validity of it. So we can bring our beliefs out in the open. Uh, Kind of maybe a demonstration of this is um, many years ago I... uh, lived in a, in a little apartment, and I had um, bird feeders out on the porch. Uh, and uh, I really love, it's one of my favorite things is, to, is birds and watching them at the bird feeder. So I really enjoy in the morning um, having a cup of tea and watching the birds. And so one day I was sitting there doing that. Oh, a little aside is that um, the bears like the bird feeders too. And so... Um, it wasn't cheap <laughs> because replacing bird feeders was very expensive if any of you had done this. I, um, so periodically the bears would get the, the bird feeder and have to buy another one. And I remember one time a bear got the feeder and he was running through the, um, the meadow and he had the bird feeder under his arm and was running with the other three, you know, off with my bird feeder. <laughs> so I was watching the birds one morning and I had this thought, I thought, I wonder if I've gotten my money's worth out of, you know, all the money I've spent on bird food and, and bird feeders. You know, I wonder if I've gotten my money's worth. This is the lowest form of giving. <laughs> you know, giving to the, the food to the birds, right? But really it was about me and what I was getting from it. Then I, I realized I didn't actually, that wasn't a pleasant way of looking at it. You know, I could feel the contraction, so I thought, this bird food is um, my gift to the birds. I'm giving it to them so that they have food to eat and, and can be strong. And it's like, that felt much better. My heart felt a little freer. It wasn't all about me, right? And then, um, without even trying to, my heart went even, um, or my mind heart went even a little further, the thought arose, Actually, it's not about giving and receiving. It's about just the stance 
of the universe and and um, we're just playing our parts. My part is to offer the feed, uh, food and, and the birds is to eat it. And that felt even freer. It was even my identification as the one giving was um, lessened. So we explore like the different ways that we give and how it manifests. Somebody once expressed that we have five currencies or five ways we can give, and I really love this. Um, Five currencies we can give. Time, energy, resources, love, and talent. So we always have something we can give. We can give our compassion to somebody who's suffering. That's a form of giving. Or we can give our energy and time to some of the real problems of this world. So we have five currencies. Time, energy, resources, love, and talent. We should never underestimate the power of giving love and compassion. I didn't finish the story I told you guys about the woods and the trees, the trees. So I'll tell you the end. So when I went out to sit with the trees, if you'll remember, they cut all the trees, and I went out to sit with the land to send it healing energy. And then when I got there and was sitting, it's like they didn't want the land and the trees didn't want my healing energy. (laughs) They wanted me to just sit with them and to share their pain. I got the sense they really wanted me to witness their pain, and and to be there. (coughs) You could say they didn't want to be fixed. (laughs) And after I sat for a while, I don't know if I mentioned this the other night, but at the end, I felt something shift. And um, it was the, the, I felt like the land and the trees said, um, we're ready now for you to, we're ready now to receive some of that energy. And it was just by my bearing witness, my willingness to sit there with the pain, that that shift start, happened. And so just a little bit, I sent just a little bit of metta and compassion. They didn't want a lot. They didn't want to be <laughs> overwhelmed. It was just a little bit. So if we ever feel like um, we're powerless in changing a situation, it's so important to remember that just caring is very very powerful gift. And I feel like the four Brahma Viharas can really help us with giving because it can give us a template in how to give, how to share our love and our energy um, in a way that is um, sane and that... uh, that we don't burn out. So we have basic kindness, which helps us to connect. And we have compassion, which uh, helps us learn how to touch pain and suffering with care, to meet it with care. And then we have appreciative joy, which um, teaches us how to balance care with appreciation. So with seeing what's going well, what's happy, what's successful. And this keeps us from getting bogged down in despair 
over the breadth and the depth of suffering that we contact in this world. A few months ago, my dad called me. Um, my dad is hes um, becoming more and more limited, both physically and cognitively. So he called me. Um, it was early March, I believe it was. And he says, guess what happened? He said, yesterday I was outside and I fell down and I couldn't get up. And this is Minnesota in the winter. And... Um, And uh, he said, I had to kind of crawl to the door. And he said, eventually a neighbor came. So I watched my mind when he said that. And I was like, I could feel like I just wanted to go towards despair and helplessness and powerlessness, right? My mind was just like heading down that highway. And then I was like, no, that's not helpful here. So I brought my attention to him And he was actually quite delightful. He was kind of delighted. He was having a good time talking to me. And so I bought my, and actually as he gets more cognitively impaired, he actually gets funnier sometimes. Sometimes. So I brought my attention to just delighting in him and his kind of lightheartedness, <laughs> and just talking to him. It was like, I just kept coming back to that delight, and we had a wonderful conversation. And you could tell that it was very nice for him, and it was very nice for me. And so um, I cared deeply about what was going on. Uh, I suggested that he didn't go outside and by himself in the winter, but he didn't listen. He doesn't listen. Um, uh, um, and now he's actually in a nursing home, so a whole other thing. But um, it's like as we get familiar with these different uh, um, Brahma-Vihara energies, we get um, more capable of moving around within them in ways that, that, that are helpful. We have more choice. And then equanimity, the last one, it teaches us the limits of what we can do. It teaches us to let go of attachment to the results of our giving, our caring, our connecting. And this morning when I mentioned that um, with equanimity we, we have appropriate boundaries, I didn't mean the boundaries around the connection. With equanimity there's still this deep connection but boundaries around the attachment or our entanglement in the situation. One person described equanimity as unentangled participation. So we we connect with whatever the situation is um, and we look at where our wishes, our attachment, where our stickiness is um, basically causing us suffering and sometimes causing others suffering too. So we we look at what's the entanglement in the situation and how can we participate um, without attachment to the results. So whether it's a painful sensation in the knee, how can we participate with that without attachment to results? Or whether it's 
our connection with a person who's suffering, how do we participate with them without attachment to results, to fixing? Or whether it's some painful situation in the world, how do we participate without entanglement or attachment to results? T.S. Eliot said, teach us to care and not to care. That's what he's pointing towards. So recently, um, not the last few years, there was a big move to build a pipeline uh, through my town and through um, northern Massachusetts, bringing fracked gas from Pennsylvania to the, um, well, supposedly to us, but it, but it was ending in an export terminal, so there was some doubt about that part. Um, and so... This pipeline was going to go right through, it was the plan It was for it to go right through this um, many ge- geologically sensitive areas. And one of them was a, a nature preserve where my partner and I are vernal pool monitors. We, we go to a vernal pool every spring. We monitor the amphibian popula- the population and the salamanders and how many egg masses and all this kind of stuff. And so I was, a, I was opposed to this pipeline for many reasons, the, the ecological reasons and reasons related to fossil fuels and all that. So I decided to do something, and I did civil disobedience training, and I joined an affinity group. These affinity groups are groups that um, uh, prepare for uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. I never really believed that uh, the pipeline would be canceled. I, I didn't believe my actions were going to make much difference. But I felt it was important to do it anyway. That, well, this was my form of giving and caring for, the, for this planet, basic, basic, basically. Gandhi says, everything you do will be insignificant, and it's still extremely important that you do it. And um, I'll be damned, we won. They canceled the pipeline. And this was after several years of fighting. <laughs> a huge number of, lots of resistance um, from people. And um, I'm still in shock. That was only a few weeks ago, actually. On the final withdrawal was um, April 26th. And one of the things that had been done is um, they were very creative. It was definitely, um, this group was committed to nonviolence. And um, where the path of the pipeline went, we had this map. It was very clear where it was supposed to go. And um, so somebody built on their land where it was supposed to go. They built a little cabin right where the pipeline was supposed to go. And um, they made it like Thoreau's cabin. The same, it was a replica of Thoreau's cabin, Henry David Thoreau's cabin. And then the, the town clerk said, well, you know, it's so small, you don't really need a permit to build this. But I suggest you get one, because if you get a permit to build it, then they have to get a permit to tear it down. It might take a while. <laughs> so, so they built this little cabin, and um, just really creative, creative ways of, and then other people started building cabins, or planning to build cabins all along the, um, the pipeline. And so then when they canceled it, we had a little celebration down at the cabin, and 
And even though I'm really busy, it's like I went there because I wanted to appreciate the success. You know, that's one way of, of taking care of our hearts is to appreciate. So I think that Brahma-viharas can help us be more effective givers in this world. They can help us learn how to give with balance and without um, burning out. Well, we have successfully finished another hour of Dharma contemplation. With giving, we learn to leave behind us a beautiful wake. And it doesn't have to be big things. It can be small things like smiling at somebody, being there for a child, or big things like putting our energy into um, work around climate change or undoing racism. And our practice helps us to be able to do that all of that effectively in a way that um, adds happiness and care to this world. So if you find that your energy flags in the last few days of this retreat, remember that you're not just doing this for yourself. I mean, you are doing it self, but remember that you're also doing it for Everybody, you're doing it for your partner, you're doing it for your friends, you're doing it for your children, you're doing it for your family, you're doing, doing it for the person you would cut off in traffic, you're doing it for your community, you're doing it for our planet. And when you wonder if you can do one more sitting or one more walking period, just remember, just do it all. Do it for all the people that will benefit from your being a wiser and kinder person. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.